Our guest today, British journalist Oliver Millman, is the environmental correspondent for Guardian U.S. We have often on this program quoted from the reporting found in The Guardian. It tends to be penetrating and valuable. Mr. Millman has examined an environmental issue that should be of concern to all of us, yet has to a large degree gotten lost in the shuffle. His new book is titled The Insect Crisis. If you've not heard about this subject, listen up. Its subtitle is The Fall of the Tiny Empires That Rule the World. To say that insect empires rule the world is really not hyperbole. Neither is the assertion that populations of these small creatures are endangered. And that spells serious trouble for we larger creatures and our empires. Among other things, Mr. Millman addresses the crashing of bee populations and collapse of butterfly numbers. Both of these have gotten some press, but it turns out that's just the tip of the iceberg. Far more is at stake than honeybees and monarchs. I would ask anyone old enough who can remember the 60s or 70s to recall how much work it was to clean the car's windshield after a summer drive. Our windshields simply do not get as buggy as they used to. While that's a boon to car care, it spells a looming catastrophe for the environment. We'd better learn what's going on, why it's going on, and what we might do about it. And to take a run at that, we're pleased to be able to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Oliver Millman. Hi there, Doug. Great to be with you. Well, in my backyard, Mr. Millman, I got two apricot trees that are in bloom. I know I can expect fruit if the insects do their job, but I did check yesterday and observe fewer pollinators than what was once normal. Now, I can do without fruit, but crops dependent upon insects, if they see declines, the world's going to be in trouble, will it not? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we rely upon um, insects and other pollinators to provide us about a third of the world's food crops in terms of their propagation. So, um, you know, without uh, bees and flies and other pollinating insects, we'd be without, you know, apples and cranberries and uh, almonds, melons, blueberries, cherries. I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean, you'd even be without uh, chocolate because uh, it's a tiny midge that uh, uh, crawls within the cacao plant to, to pollinate it. So a lot of the kind of uh, delicious things in our life, but also uh, the most nutritionally important things in our life um, would be gone without insects. And there are already concerns being raised by United Nations and other groups around a potential pollination crunch, whereby uh, an expanding global population is happening at the same time as a pollination deficit. And that's leading concerns about um, food security, uh, potential malnutrition due to um, uh, a decline in pollination. Yeah, I was surprised about that line you had in the book about get rid of flies and you get rid of chocolate. <laughs> but uh, it's more than people realize. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, cardamom, coriander, cumin, I mean, all the, all the ingredients for good curry would be would be gone. Um, alfalfa is pollinated by insects, and that's what uh, the primary diet of dairy that produce, uh, sorry, the cattle that produce um, uh, dairy, that, so therefore no ice cream. I mean, um, unless you're into the vegan stuff, of course. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a kind of broad sweep of things that are uh, reliant upon um, uh, on insects. And it is very much the kind of colorful stuff on the plate, the, the stuff that you need nutritionally for, for a good balanced diet. And uh, there was one kind of alarming piece of research I came across in the, in the, the writing of the book is in that um, an extra million deaths a year globally are expected due to heart disease and other conditions because of that pollination deficit and therefore nutrition deficit if these trends continue. Wow. 
Well, the stats on insect declines are disturbing. You've documented many of them uh, in the book from around the world. Um, are there some that really jump out at you as the most alarming? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think being a kind of environmental writer, I, I never really thought about the world of insects as being hugely consequential or, or indeed in any kind of danger. I mean, I mean they seem ubiquitous, don't they, um, mm-hmm. insects? You, you never ever think of them as being in shortage. Um, I mean, they are three quarters of all named life on this on this world. They're the kind of closest animals to us, really, other than our pets. Sometimes they feel a bit too close, don't they, when <laughs> we're thinking about uh, fleas and mosquitoes and cockroaches and so on. But uh, it was about kind of 2017, 2018 that these studies started coming out, several of them in succession, showing these kind of quite startling declines in, in insect numbers. And it was really the kind of first time, I think, that the scientific world and they're, they're, therefore the media started to kind of get their heads around what might be happening out there. I think one of the big landmark pieces of research was this study from Germany uh, where this entomological group had been um, collecting data there um, for decades and one of the few groups out there really to collect numbers on uh, numbers and data on insect numbers because previously everybody thought, what was the point? There's so many of them, why would you bother? Um, collating these trends. And what they found was astonishing. I mean, they had these uh, traps in um, 63 protected nature areas across Germany, and um, they noticed they were catching fewer and fewer insects, and they crunched the numbers with some outside scientists to help. Um, They found that since 1989, the annual average rate of flying insects um, had fallen by 76%. And some of the the number was even higher, 82% decline. I mean, that's absolute incredible uh, rate of decline and it kind of triggered all these kind of media reports about, you know, insect again and, you know, um, insect catastrophe. Um, it kind of kicked that off. But there were other pieces of research that really kind of grabbed me. There was uh, this entomologist, Brad Listes from New York. He he went to a El Yunque rainforest in Puerto Rico. It's the only rainforest on U.S. territory. Went there in the 1970s and he set her out um, putting these kind of plastic plates uh, covered in kind of sticky substances on the on the ground, forest floor, and up in the canopy. He went back, came back in the morning, and, and kind of weighed and counted the insects, and they were kind of black in these plates because there were so many insects on there. He went back kind of four years ago, um, and he noticed there was far less flying around, uh, far fewer insects and far fewer lizards and birds. They obviously eat the insects. And when he did the same uh, study he did previously. Um, uh, he found an incredible decline. It was 98% of insects by biomass had gone from compared to the 1980s uh, on the forest floor, which is, again is an astonishing number. You, you see these repeatedly in these studies around the world. You see these kind of declines you never normally see really. Um, conservation biology, you know, butterflies down 84% in the Netherlands since the 1890s. British butterfly numbers have nearly halved in the past 50 years. I mean. You can just go through on and on through these studies and just see these kind of quite amazing declines you don't normally see in um, in, in studies of that nature. Well, I alluded in the in the in the intro to this anecdotal evidence that I think uh, many listeners have observed, and I was mentioning to a friend yesterday about how our windshields don't get smeared like they used to, uh, and he said, "You're right," but it had never dawned on him that this might be significant. And I know you mentioned uh, in the book a man in Denmark. He samples insects by driving around and checking his windshield. Um, I suspect anyone who remembers what it was like years ago knows there's something to this, but, you know, I imagine you're still running into some skeptics. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think we have in this, uh, you know, the preconception in our mind that insects are kind of everywhere and how could they possibly be in any kind of trouble? And also there's this issue of a shifting baseline syndrome, isn't there, whereby what we consider people of a certain age, if you're middle-aged, to be normal, something normal from our youth may have changed and we've noticed that change, such as the insects on the on the windshield. It's just just not there anymore. I mean, I drove around Montana for uh, a week last uh, year, and I mean, obviously, a huge uh, open space kind of place. It's uh, not heavily populated by any stretch of the imagination, Montana. At the end of the week, I, my car didn't have a single uh, bug on the windshield wow. after a whole week driving around. And wow. it kind of re- yeah, it's, it kind of struck me as kind of astonishing that that would be the case. Um, but for younger people growing up, that may seem normal and you may get the situation in a few years' time where everybody kind of just accepts that as a norm or kind of expectations shift and change. Uh, and so I think it's important, I also tried to do in this book, was to kind of outline exactly what was the norm a few, just a few decades ago and what we've lost. And um, I think it's quite dramatic when you think about it in those kind of time frames. Well, I, I was dismayed to uh, to see in your book how, as you would expect, pesticide manufacturers, and of course pesticides are a major villain in all this, they spend a lot of money to portray scientists that are expressing concerns as alarmists, conspiracy theorists. It's kind of the same playbook that Big Tobacco used to counter those who reported on smoking's ill effects, of course, and, and, it, and it's well-funded. Oh, yeah, for sure, for certain. I mean... The big kind of pesticide manufacturers, and they are huge businesses now, um, Bayer, which uh, took on Monsanto and Syngenta and so on. I mean, a lot of their um, income relies upon these most toxic insect-killing pesticides. I mean, they're financially dependent upon them, really, to drive profits. So they're trying to protect their market share, as, uh, you know, tobacco industry did, fossil fuel industry has done with, uh, in the face of climate science. I mean, it's the same kind of um, playbook of, um, you know, muddying, muddying the facts, trying to play up the benefits of their product while downplaying the negative uh, impacts of them. And we're seeing that um, we're seeing that play, certainly play out within the U.S. I mean, European Union has banned three of the most toxic chemicals uh, that are within this class of chemicals called neonicotinoids, which are um, something based on nicotine. Um, but there's no such move here in the U.S. Um, because big agriculture has a very tight grip on farmers, uh, on uh, members of Congress, um, and the discourse, I, I think, around food production. I mean, that's been slower to shift here, and I think um, it'll be interesting to see whether you know concerns over uh, biodiversity and insect life may, may shift out of it. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad to see the EU is ahead of the USDA on this. Uh, I was disturbed to read in your book that the um, these neonicotinoids might not even work the way these companies claim. They, they wind up leaching into the soil. Not They're not present in the plant in quantity as you'd hope when they're supposed to protect them from the, the pests, etc. And they, they're even selling us seeds now that are pre-treated with pesticides, which I think folks visiting the nursery might not even be aware of. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think a lot of farmers are buying seeds and they're not entirely sure what they're getting in a lot of respects. They're kind of very much hooked into a system whereby it's hard for them to avoid these pesticides because the 
neonicotinoids are coated on seeds of uh, corn or soy or whatever the crop is, uh, and they're with the plant right from the get-go. Um, and the chemical companies say, well, this is to reduce spraying, so you don't have you know spray drifting in the wind onto places you don't want it to go. Um, but the the downside, like you say, is that these these um, chemicals are water soluble, so as soon as it rains, uh, you know they wash out the plant into soils, into streams, into rivers. Um, I mean, they get everywhere. They kill everything uh, in sight, everything around, every bee, every butterfly, every beetle, as well as the pests. And they get into drinking water. They get into baby food. They, they've been found on spinach. They've been found on onions. Um, they tested uh, the urine of hundreds of people in China, and every single one had neonicotinoids in their, their urine. I mean, these, these, these chemicals have got everywhere. And as you alluded to before, the frustration for a lot of researchers I was speaking to was that they're not particularly good at what they do. The agricultural land in the U.S. has become 48 times more toxic than it was 25 years ago, and yet the yields of um, uh, crop haven't gone up by the amount uh, of uh, pesticides being put on them. In fact, in some cases, they suffer. Um, They've gone down in some places. So there's lots of evidence to show that far more harm is being done um, to the environment um, and even to crop yields um, than, than is actually being uh, the benefits uh, being accrued by the use of these chemicals. So there certainly needs to be a rethink on the indiscriminate use of these um, pesticides across, uh, across the U.S. Well, getting rid of DDT is something that people are very, I think, pleased to see in the wake of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, etc. But you point out a lot of these, a lot of these things are, are, are much more toxic than DDT ever was. Yeah. Now, I mean, neonicotinoids, there was one calculation that they're about 7,000 times more toxic to bees than DDT. Um, and obviously DDT was, like you say, the uh, the kind of main villain in Silent Spring. Uh, it was blamed for the, the decline of bald eagles in the U.S. And, and eventually led to this kind of triumphant banning of it. Um, uh, but, I mean, we've essentially replaced um, one kind of class of harmful chemicals with uh, another that are far worse for bees and not just killing them but you know scrambling their brains sending them mad i mean it, it affects their logistical abilities their ability to get back to the hive um they cannot perform the tasks they normally do um and that, and that harm can go through the generations goes through the whole kind of hive system so um i think it's i think it's really time for a kind of rethink on on the use of them especially at the the scale and quantity that they use. Well, I'm sad to note that just in the news a couple of days ago, when I was thinking about our, our interview here, I noted there was an item on malathion use, how they're going to change its labeling in the U.S. to suggest maybe you shouldn't spray it when bees are around. And <laughs> I was depressed to learn there's like 3 million pounds of this stuff, which, which makes a first-class nerve gas, uh, was still in yearly use here in the U.S. Yeah, and uh, the EPA is about to... Um, look at the licensing for these main types of neonicotinoids and by all accounts they're going to reapprove the use of them uh, for another 15-year period. You get a 15-year license um, and that's coming up and it looks like it's going to be waved through with these kind of apparent safeguards around, you know, do not spray here or there, you know, where it's um, most dangerous. But of course, bees, especially wild bees, nest in all kinds of places, in the ground, in little tree hollows, little spaces, wherever they can find. Um, There's no way you can avoid um, bees, uh, as 
especially if you are spraying a substance that leaches quite easily into pollen, which bees obviously fly to get. I mean, it's, I think it's quite fanciful, the idea that you can somehow use these really toxic products without um, harm to bees. It's like saying we could just fire these missiles up uh, into the into areas of the country and <laughs> it won't harm anybody. I mean, mm. I mean you could, but um, you probably will harm people. So maybe best to not do it. Well, I'm hoping that medical people, I'm, I'm a physician, can get in, more involved in some of this. There was a headline I just saw a couple of days ago also. Uh, made no appearance in your book, but maybe in a future edition. And I was, I was unaware. Streptomycin is an antibiotic that they spray onto apples and pears to, to fight bacterial attack. This article mentioned that concern was being raised that, well, that could affect the gut microflora of bees. But as, as a doctor, I'd be like, what about humans? I mean, the, the news story only mentions the bumblebee's gut, but it's like, my God, streptomycin sprayed on the environment? Yeah, I mean, I think there is some kind of um, early stage research looking at the impact on humans. It can't be good, you, you would imagine. Um, you worry that it's a potential ticking time bomb, much like plastic pollution, you think about microplastics and how we're essentially ingesting all these different kind of things through the application of pesticides, plastic pollution, other other forms of pollution. And um, I don't think we fully understand what it's doing to our bodies. That may well be, if there is a silver lining in that, um, uh, the, the trigger for us to do something about it because we've been pretty slow in um, acting to save uh, bees and other insects. Um, maybe if we are directly under threat from these chemicals ourselves, we will, we will be uh, kind of prompted into some sort of action. Our guest is author Oliver Millman. His new book, The Insect Crises, The Fall of the Tiny Empires That Run the World, has now become available to readers. I, I want to note, Mr. Millman, that I, I was a biology major many years ago at UC Davis, although I never did take a class from Dr. Dr. Arthur Shapiro, with whom you, certify, uh, you surveyed butterflies. But we were taught decades ago that crop monoculture would lead to an explosion of insect pests, explosive use of poisons. We learned about integrated pest management. Uh, they're not new concepts, but the biology of it ran up against economics. I, I learned back in the day that local tomato farmers were contracted by canneries to spray six times a year, regardless of need. It, it's overkill, yet it went on, and it still does. The public needs to know um, know about this, how, how about this overuse. Yeah, I mean, I think the whole, everybody involved in agriculture has been locked into a system that has been devised and driven by large agricultural corporations trying to eke as much um, profit out of the land as possible. The idea of uh, farmers being this kind of, you know, small family-run operation with a kind of diversified farm with an orchard in the corner, maybe a few chickens around, um, is kind of an image from the past. Yeah. Um, we're, talking, we're talking now about huge, you know, tracts of land, uh, monocultural crops, you know, a sea, a carpet of soy or corn and nothing else. So as far as I can see, um, you know, millions and millions of acres owned by just a handful of companies. There are actually fewer farms in the U.S. now than there was before the Civil War. U.S. Civil War, despite their population being 11 times greater, which kind of shows you the, the kind of consolidation that's happened in the industry. It's got bigger, uh, more chemicals, more machinery, um, kind of far less kind of in touch with the land, I suppose you, I suppose you could say. And 
yeah, it's, it's led to this kind of uh, endless application of uh, pesticides um, and uh, not much thought about the broader environment, not much thinking about, you know, where does this land fit into the broader ecology? I mean, I've been to the Central Valley in California. And, um, you know, in terms of efficiency of churning out kind of fruits and vegetables, it's incredible. It's an incredible operation, but um, it's not a natural environment in any <laughs> In any respect, there's, you barely see a weed or a, uh, you know, a wildflower or anything like that because that's unprofitable. You you want to uh, maximise as much of the land as you can for your crops, so that all has to go, and um, that's been detrimental extreme in the in the extreme for insects. Well, I, I want to talk solutions to some of this, and and we're going to spend some time on that. I I hope as as we as we finish this off, but this opens up a door here that. Um, well, Michael Pollan told us many years ago on this program that if you go to Iowa, what used to be, as you describe, old-style farms where they would have different animals here that were fed silage and things like that, he goes, that's all gone. It's just corn, corn, corn as far as the eye can see. And if you simply can break up uh, this monoculture with other environments, that can do a tremendous amount of good by maintaining populations of insects. Yeah, that's right. And there is some good work happening. It's kind of mainly happening in Europe and the UK at the moment, but uh, it's kind of starting to catch on a little bit in the US of um, connecting uh, habitats. So having, you know, paying farmers or encouraging them in some other ways to have a kind of uh, border of wildflowers that kind of snakes through the, the um, snake through the landscape so you have these connected kind of corridors of where wildlife can move including insects i mean they just need a chance we just need to give them a, a chance a little bit of breathing room um i mean it's incredibly hard if you're a bee if you're looking out there and there's nothing to eat um it's one researcher said to me it's like we all we're giving them is chips nothing but chips even if they don't like chips or alleged chips <laughs> that's all they have so mm-hmm. if there's just something at the border uh, just a little remnant that uh, they can kind of feed upon, have shelter there. That gives them a little chance. It gives them a foothold in the in the landscape. And if you can do that in a connected way where they can move up through and around into to new areas without having these kind of desolate kind of deserts in between, then that's, that's all the better. I mean, I, I think that's an achievable thing that could be aimed for that doesn't even, that doesn't even harm the, uh, doesn't even harm farms financially. They can do that without great cost, and I think you'd see great benefits from doing that. Well, you mentioned in the book the ick factor. A lot of people just don't like bugs, but uh, people are talking up using insects as food. They're, they're used as food all over the world. We're just starting to now think about that here at home, and I, I just I had to share another story going back to college days that disturbed me then and disturbs me now. Um, I had a summer job working at a cannery, uh, the lab there would take a look at what was in the tomato products. They would check for tiny amounts of insect parts. And uh, Insects are edible, of course. They're not harmful. They were constantly testing for bug bits, and they might condemn an entire batch if they judged it contaminated, while all the while not bothering to test for pesticide residues, which, which by definition are poison. I mean, it, it was madness. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, that's... I mean. That- I think one of the most interesting parts of the book for me is looking at the declines and solutions for those, but also culturally what we think of insects, how we've been brought up to think about them. Um, You speak to entomologists and they say in in kindergarten, um, kids love insects, they find them cool. And, um, 
you know, they want to kind of see them and touch them and learn more about them. But by the time they're in high school, they hate them and they find them repulsive. And I think that's something culturally we've we've taught ourselves and kind of goes through um, all society, well, most societies anyway, certainly in the Western world. Um, so there is that kind of ick factor, like you say. We, we you know, call them creepy crawlies, which is quite a rude term. We, we say that people are bugging us if they're annoying us. We kind of have quite a negative view of insects from the get-go. So um, the idea that they could be beneficial and then they should be saved is quite hard for some people. I always like to point out that, you know, lobsters, crabs, and, and shrimp are not the most attractive creatures, but uh, they're pretty tasty. Yeah, that's right. I mean, lobsters are a really good example in that I think uh, in the early days of European um, colonization of the U.S., lobsters were seen as these kind of disgusting bottom feeders, and they were ground up uh, and put onto fields as fertilizer. Um, and now, now, obviously, it's a very highly regarded food. You get 30 buck lobster rolls, don't you? Our whole our whole view of food can change, can't it? Um, sushi used to be something that was kind of confined to Japan, <laughs> yeah, exactly. and, kind of um, and now it's you know one of the most popular foods around the world, isn't it? I mean, we can we can change culturally how we view different animals, different foods, the value of them, and and hopefully that might change around um, insects because it's actually far more environmentally friendly to raise crickets and mealworms and other other things for food than it is uh, cattle. I mean, raising beef is environmentally disastrous so um, if there is that kind of shift towards them then that's um be good for good for everybody but um ironically also good for insects well there's a lot involved in, in all of this uh, your book mentions a study on moths had it showed a negative effect from nighttime light pollution especially leds and I, i'm hoping if people can complain about those street lights throwing their light everywhere rather than where it's needed maybe we can stop confusing moths and caterpillars etc yeah that's right i mean that's Again, one of the most simple things we could maybe do to help insects is not to kind of completely light, light up the night sky um, all the time. A lot of light pollution is, you know, un, unnecessary. We don't need it to, to operate, and yet it's disastrous for, yeah, moths. Uh, fireflies in particular, obviously, they need to signal in a kind of uh, dead night sky to each other uh, around mating and uh, communication. So they, they, they need that kind of darkness to, to do that. And, and kind of breaking that reliable uh, switch between day and night is, is something that's um, really scrambled the brains of a lot of insects because they become extremely confused, they become prey, they can just simply die off. So, um, yeah, light pollution is something, one of the kind of perhaps the, one of the easier things we could maybe work on to, um, to help insects out. And I hope you'll allow me to vent for just a moment about a pet peeve of mine. I wanted to emphasize, listeners, please stop buying those bug zappers. Uh, the bugs you want to kill are biting insects. They're not attracted to the lights. You're just killing good bugs or neutral bugs. That's right. I mean, the moth that's circling the light uh, until it kind of dies of exhaustion because um, it thinks the light of the moon uh, is not your enemy. Um, I think I, I, there's a line in my book around how, you know, there's several thousand species of moths, there's only kind of one or two that will eat your clothes, and even then it's the larvae, not the actual moths. So the moths are a good thing to have around. They're um, beneficial animals. Most insects are you know, beneficial to us, um, and you know we should maybe overturn our thinking that maybe we only like the odd bee or the odd beautiful butterfly. There's far more that uh, is interesting and wonderful and useful to us than that.
Well, I was pleased to see in your in your book you note that another simple solution: simply foregrowing crops for a year that can pay us big dividends. Yeah, that's right. Um, again, it comes down to the kind of business model of big agriculture that demands that you know um, single single crops be um, planted and grown, and then once they're um, out of season and the fields just laid bare, that isn't good for soil health. The soil just gets washed away. Not good for insects, of course, because there's nothing there. It's just um, barren. So it's to have um, that's kind of cover crops, uh, and then uh, even at home, you can think you can think about if you have a yard, just letting things go a bit, letting the grass grow a little bit. Don't rake the leaves in the yard. Uh, plant some um, native plants rather than kind of flashy ornamental plants. The insects really appreciate that if you just kind of let things slide a little bit rather than you know manicuring everything to death. Yeah, I get a lot of grief from friends of mine because I have what I, what they think of as a lot of lawn, but I, I let lots. For me, it's a meadow. I have all kinds of plants in there that are not just monoculture grass, and I and I like to think that that's that's not a bad idea. For sure, I think again that comes back to the kind of cultural idea of what's desirable, and for a lot of people, it's a kind of you know closely cut, manicured lawn, isn't it? But um, insects kind of need a bit more diversity than that. I think it's actually far more interesting to have some kind of wildflowers there, a bit of color, um, something a bit more alive. I, I've let the dandelions go, I have to confess, and in your book your book <laughs> recommends that. Yeah, that's it, yeah. I mean, I think it's when you're in these, when you're in these kind of places that haven't been cut down to, to the quick, um, that haven't been kind of covered in chemicals, when the grass is allowed to grow a bit and you have a bit more, you know, wildness to it, it's a far different place to be. It's a far more alive place to be. You have bugs kind of hitting on the legs and the face. You have the sound of them. You can see them. The air is kind of thrumming with life. And I feel, I mean, it's down to individual taste, isn't it? But um, I find that a far more interesting place to be in, a far more kind of vibrant place to be in. Well, I'm happy to report my insects are doing very well in, 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 my, in my realm. That's good to know. As we close, I, I would I would ask you to give our listeners some marching orders. Uh, there's a lot of people that are going to hear this program. Uh, what would you What would you have them do to help our six legged friends? If they do have a, a backyard, just know that they can provide a haven, and you know you don't you can't solve the problem yourself, but you can help. So you can lay off the chemicals at home. You can let the grass grow a little bit. You can plant some native plants. Look at what's in your area that's native, that native pollinators yeah. uh, feed upon, and, and plant that rather than just what you think is you know, the most attractive range of flowers around yourself. Um, try, and, try and eat organic if you can. I mean, again, it's not going to solve the problem. Um, you, know, you can't easily do that, but a little bit will help. Maybe think about, you know, obviously, bigger things around who you vote for and what you're campaigning for, you know. Um, a lot of the things that benefit insects will benefit us too. If we act on climate change, um, habitat destruction, uh, reducing pesticides, these are all things that will help us all as well as insects. So try and support policies that do those things. Those, those would be the main things I would uh, suggest. Well, for my part, I've tried several times in the last few years to get a couple of hives of bees going. They do well for a while, but... Then I lose them, but, but I'm, I'm going to keep trying. <laughs> Good on you. Keep at it. We've been speaking with author and environmental reporter Oliver Millman about his most worthwhile book, The Insect Crisis, The Fall of the Tiny Empires That Run the World. 
we uh, we certainly wish you the best, Mr. Moment, getting the word out to the public. Uh, we hope we can, we've helped in that regard, and, and we thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. That was a really good chat. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and we'll see you again real soon. Thank you.